Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the Lord's Word? Reading out of Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, which would be a Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word. I pray that you would open our ears, our minds, our hearts to receive this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is going to be one of the stranger Easter messages that you'll have heard, I suspect. Um, I want to just touch briefly on this text before going into really what is behind this and a deeper understanding. This is one of several renditions in the Gospels of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is hugely significant. It is the validation of his sacrifice on the cross. It is what shows his power and authority over death and over uh, all of creation. It is hugely significant, so significant that Paul said if the resurrection is not real, then, then everything is basically off the plate. Um, and so it's huge, and we celebrate that this day, but so often we go into celebrations and we get hyped and wired, and we don't understand the depth behind it. So just quickly, for a moment on this, one of the reasons I pull this particular um, rendition of the resurrection uh, as compared to some of the other ones in the gospel is there's two things here that just kind of crack me up. Just me probably will not even face you. But there's this huge stone. I mean, it's a big stone. And uh, at one of the other renditions in the gospel say that the ladies as they're going to the tomb, while it's just turned light or still kind of dark, even as they're going, they're saying, okay, how are we going to get this huge stone out of the way? Okay, we'll have to maybe get someone to help us, whatever the case may be. And instead, the earthquake, the angel comes down and rolls the stone away. That's not what cracks me up. What cracks me up is what comes next. It says he rolled back the stone, and then he sat on it. It's a big stone. Okay, so he either did a parkour move and got up on top, or he levitated. But it just cracks me up that he's moved this huge stone, and here's this angelic being, and he's just kind of sitting there just kind of cool, you know? So, hey, what's happening, you know? I mean, he's just, he, he could have done anything. He could have stood beside it. He could have sat down. He could have hovered, whatever it is. Instead, he just sits down like, done, all right? So that's number one. Number two is what I believe happened with the guards because it says that they fell as dead. They saw this angelic being. They're terrified. They fall as dead. 
I think they were faking. I think they're sitting there, and the one guy opens his eye, looking at him, and says, is he gone yet? No, I don't think he's gone. Okay. <laughs> so wait till he goes. Nobody will know anything going on. So those two aspects catch me a bit. Now, as I said, this validates the crucifixion of Christ. We've been talking in recent time about the difference between what our society views as love, which is either highly sexualized or strongly affirming, you know, I love you, do whatever you want, I will affirm you, no matter how bizarre and crazy it is, because that's what real love is, which is not what real love is. Real love sees us for who we are, openly and honestly. Real love um, seeks us out despite who we are and what is seen. Real love, the love of God, speaks to us with both grace and truth, not just truth, not just grace, with grace and truth in perfect balance. Real love serves us, speaks and serves to us in ways that even we don't think are the right ways because we are twisted in our thinking, but because he knows who we are, attempts to guide us in a certain way, doesn't dominate. But above all, real love sacrifices and takes risks. We have no idea in our society any longer what real love is, but, but Jesus did. He knew that, he was that love, and he expressed it. My wife has, uh, we talked recently, and uh, something came up about 1980s songs or something like that, and she was saying, I like the 80s. They were the best songs. There was a lot of songs about love in the 1980s, for those of you that weren't around in that time period, okay? You know, it began in 1980. These were a number of ones that were number one hit songs in the 80s, all about love. In 1980, Queen starts off by singing about a crazy little thing called love. Any of you remember that one? Yeah. Okay, don't sing it. Um, Diana Ross, Lionel Richie fall with an ode to endless love. Ario Speedwagon promised to keep on loving you. Joan Jett announced, I love rock and roll. I like that one. Tina Turner asked, what's... <laughs> Those are a lot of really old voices. <laughs> Stevie Wonder raised the possibility of a part-time lover. Huey Lewis in the news reminded us of the power of love. There's about a half dozen more. I'm not going to go into all the different ones that were of that time. But, but we keep to seem to keep reaching for an understanding of what it was. And then, here's the thing that's interesting. 30 years plus now later, what, almost 40 in some cases, um, the number one song that is still played from that era and most requested is by a band called Foreigner. It's the song, I Want to Know What Love Is. There seems to have been a, a, a chorus there that has hooked into our brain that we can't get rid of. It says, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know that you can show me. To understand the importance of the resurrection and what it costs, we have to go back and deeper into what is going on. Jesus is at the Last Supper. And he has gathered together um, his guys, and they've discussed things. And he goes on for a number of chapters in John, and he talks about love. He expounds about love. He expounds how they'll know we're Christians by our love, um, how important it is. But there's a line that has jumped from there that just like the hook from Foreigner's song seems to have captured the imagination even of those who are not followers of Christ 
because it's a massive truth. When in John 15, verse 13, on this last night, he says, greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's what? Life for one's friends. But to lay down one's life. Sacrifice, the laying down of life, is the ultimate expression of love. And it was what Jesus was just about to do. Jesus is about to be betrayed. Judas has already left and gone to work out the act. And it's just hours later that with a kiss, he betrays him in the garden. Peter, his staunchest ally, denies him three times, several times with curses and and swearing. Everyone else abandons him. And he's left alone and isolated on this cross that is resurrected, uh, erected at the crossroads. It would have been in a busy thoroughfare. It's not detached like we see sometimes in the movies, but it would have been right on the road. This is how the Romans liked to do it. When Spartacus, uh, a slave, was executed along with his followers, they, they, they lined the road with, with, with crucified bodies and people. They wanted people to see that you do not mess with Rome. This is what you get, okay, if you mess with us. So at this busy crossroads, as people passing by all the time, they would have erected this cross and Jesus would have been put upon it, everyone else having abandoned him and left him. And yet he speaks of greater love having no one than that they would lay down their life for their friends. Real love sacrifices. There's been a number of movies made in regards to um, Jesus and his sacrifice. And it's been interesting. I, when I took a quick look at this, there's like 30-plus different actors that have actually played the role of Jesus. Um, a few of these. One, you got Max von Sydow from years back, plays Jesus, a very ethereal, very kind of almost inhuman. Max goes on to play some pretty weird characters later on in life. But he played that role. And then you got Robert Powell, another one that's just very detached kind of of Jesus, very unreal. Then things start to shift a little bit. You got Jeffrey Hunter, good looking guy, bright blue eyes, because all Jewish people of that era had <laughs> bright blue eyes. So we really captured a moment there, didn't we? You know? But I think it hit its high point with what I call GQ Jesus. <laughs> Diego Morgato. You just want to say Diego Morgato. We'd follow that Jesus anywhere, ladies, right? (laughs) Wherever he wants to go, we'll follow him. Yes, that's Jesus. But there are two movies that have particularly wrecked me over time. One of those movies is Saving Private Ryan. Now, I'm not into bloodshed. I'm not into bloody stuff. I don't like the horror movies. I don't like all the cutting up of the blood. I lived in Flint, Michigan. I saw enough of that, okay, growing up. (laughs) Did not, do not like that. And I knew that Saving Private Ryan has some of the most, probably the most brutal 15 minutes of film at the start that you'll ever experience in your life. The Normandy invasion. And the machine guns just destroying these men who are trying to take the beach for liberty and freedom. My father fought in the Battle of uh, Okinawa, which was considered the worst uh, battle of the war. I said it was a typhoon of steel. He was wounded by being shot as well as by um, a shell fragment and survived that. Uh, came back to find the majority of the guys in his unit were, were buried and dead. 
And so I went to Saving Private Ryan because I wanted to have a bit of an understanding of what my father had sacrificed and gone through. And it was terrible for me to watch that bloodshed and to watch that, but it was important for me to see that, to understand. And so today, I'm going to take you down a path that may be difficult, but I think without understanding it, you do not understand really what has been sacrificed on your behalf or how much your Heavenly Father actually loves and cares for you. The other movie that, that did a similar thing and one of the best portrayals, albeit some aspects of it were not uh, correct, but it did capture one part, and that is um, the part played by Jim Caviezel in The Passion of the Christ. And we look at this and we say, oh my gosh, this is just bloody beyond belief. And again, I know some of you are squeamish this way. I'm not trying to trigger you in any fashion. Without understanding this, though, we do not have sense of the resurrection, though. And so it was an incredibly bloody movie. It, 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 it's violent. It captures a lot of the raw ugliness of what would have taken place um, upon Christ, uh, the beatings, the, um, it captures the humanity, the, the, the bloodiness of what takes place. It is a part of life. It's deeply woven into the scripture and it's deeply woven into our own lives. And without understanding the importance of that, again, we don't comprehend fully. Jesus is speaking at the Last Supper. He's taking the Passover meal and saying this is what it's really about. The Passover meal was a meal that they did to commemorate the time they were in slavery. And so that time of slavery in Egypt is always like being bound by sin. And the last of the ten plagues that, that Moses unleashes with God's direction upon them is that the angel of death is going to come upon the households and um, is going to kill the firstborn male of every household, which is like extinguishing the line. Uh, the only possible hope uh, of this is to have an innocent lamb without a blemish slain and then have its blood applied to the wood of the doorposts, to take that blood and apply it to the wood of the doorposts, that upon seeing that innocent blood of that sacrificed lamb, that the angel of death will pass over that house. And so the Jewish people were spared this while the Egyptians suffered, and they were released from their freedom. So it was tied into freedom from slavery and sin. It was tied into provision from God, but it was tied deeply to the blood and to the sacrifice. And so it's this meal that they're celebrating, this celebration that Jesus invokes into the midst of this um, and says to them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. This is what we celebrate at communion. This is what this is done here in this point of time of the Last Supper. This works deeply into the mindset of the people who were used to sacrificing animals as part of their regular ritual. If Christ had not been crucified and, and, and rose again, you would come in today with a couple of pigeons maybe and a sheep or goat, and this would be a completely different service, okay? But we don't because that one sacrifice now has covered for everything. It had such an impact on people that in Hebrews later when they're writing in the book, it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And, and when they're talking about the holy place, what they were referring to is that at the time of Jesus' uh, uh, crucifixion, there would have been a, um, uh, there was a, an earthquake that occurred. There would have been uh, the temple. And there was a place called the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant would have rested and there would have been on that 
Top of it, you've seen the imagery of these angels with their wings bent forward, two of them. In the center of that would have been referred to as the mercy seat. And it's there that the blood of the sacrifice would have been scattered and only the high priest could go in. There would have been a thick curtain, like several feet thick, 30 plus feet high, I think maybe as high as 50 feet, they say possibly, and several feet thick that would have separated that holy place, that presence of God from all the regular people only the high priest could go into. And at the time of Jesus' um, death on the cross, as he gives up the last, it said that from the top down, there was a shredding of the curtain. Now this holy place, this access to God is accessible to anybody. And so they write about that in Hebrews saying, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, this echoes so much that at the end of time, we're told in Revelations chapter 12, 11, that it's going to be told about the church that they triumphed over Satan, they triumphed over evil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The idea of this blood permeates Scripture up to this day. At one point in time, as Jesus is walking along, John the Baptist turns and points him out to his other disciples, and he says, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That would have had, again, intense meaning to the people of that time. They would have understood that in hearing that, that this is the singular lamb, the one God provides. No more all these sacrifices year upon year upon year, no more all these rivers of blood, but this one single lamb was going to be sacrificed, that Christ was going to be that individual, that person. That would have had a huge impact upon them. They would have understood the implications of it. I don't know if you've been following news recently. Those of us that were in Israel have been pretty caught with it because things seem to have just gone crazy after we left the country. Not really drawn too much to it, but it seems like a lot of different places I've been to, like after I leave, the things get a little crazy. Not saying I'm responsible, just <laughs> seems to happen. This one was triggered, evidently, because on the Temple Mount, you'll see this blue um, building with a gold dome. It's the Dome of the Rock. Um, on the other end of the compound is, on the southern exposure, is what's called the Al-Aqsa Mo uh, Mosque. And what happened, evidently, is some of the Muslims heard that some of the Jewish people were going to come up at the Temple Mount, and they were going to sacrifice an animal. Now, understand, there's been no sacrifices on the Temple Mount for almost 2,000 years. Jesus prophesied about that just before his death, and he said, there's not going to be one stone left. It's all going to be taken down. And within 40 years, sure enough, after hundreds of years of sacrifices on that Temple Mount, the same mount that Abraham offered his own son, Isaac, his one and only son, that God intervened and provided something so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, that pointed to the time when Jesus, God was going to offer his one and only son. It's on this place. But for the last 2,000 years, there's been no sacrifices. So when it was heard that some Jewish extremists were going to do this, the Muslims got outraged, and there's been this big conflict that's ripped around here recently. Sacrifices had gone on for centuries. But within 40 years of the death of Christ... It's gone, and it hasn't come back. Why? Not necessary any longer. The one sacrifice causes all forgiveness of sin. We don't have to keep going back over and back over and back over. 
And some of us, I said, are squeamish. The very idea of blood, you know, bothers us. I've got a friend of mine that if he just sees a needle, he faints. I mean, it's that bad. But we've sanitized the gospel so much that we've cheated of its power. And we need to understand what it costs. That this was God in the flesh experiencing death for us. This was not just a man dying because God wanted. Rather, it was God dying because man needed it. That death was for you. It was for me. Those of us who are in Israel, we also went at one point in time, I didn't, some of you in this gathering here, and I, I didn't want to tell you this at the time, but you would have gone to the Yehuda Market. And the Yehuda Market's a, a gathering place in Jerusalem. It's been around for a long time, and you get spices, and I got a bag of cashews. I like cashews. They got all those different eating places and hangout stuff that's going on there. But it's also been the scene of several terrorist attacks. One of those was um, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, a young man, because school was out that day, a lot of children were around, and one young man took a knife, and he, he cut two Jewish children. Didn't kill them, but, but injured them. A crowd quickly formed and chased this man as he tried to run away from it. It was a terroristic act. They're chasing him. Some of them have guns. They want to kill this man. They're going to kill this man. And then something really unique happened. Something very, very, very strange took place. There was a woman, Bella Friend is her name, F-R-E-U-N-D, who was, who was seeing this happen, knew it had taken place. She trips this man. That was an unusual. What happened next was the really strange thing. She trips this man as this crowd's coming forward, stopping him from getting away. But then she threw her body over him, this older woman, and covered him with her body. It would not let the crowd hurt him. The crowd hit her, kicked her, tried to get at him, threatened to shoot her. Get off this man. We are going to kill him. And she would not give up. She was an Orthodox Jew, very right wing, very much opposed to what this man had done, very much in opposition to his whole value system. She was Orthodox Jew. As a woman, she vowed not to touch men or have any contact. But in that moment of time, when that event took place and happened, and she threw herself on top, Bella Friend said this, it was very simple, if you can save a life, you do it. Her distaste of Arabs, her lifelong conditioning never to touch a man who wasn't her husband, it was all set aside in a split second of truth, and she said this, quote, I could not see a helpless man killed by a mob, whatever it had done what he had done. She said she placed herself between the terrorists and the mob because I'm Jewish, because I'm, catch this, the daughter of Holocaust survivors. If anyone has an anger and a hatred or violence towards those who would attack Jewish people, I'm the daughter of Holocaust survivors because in difficult times, you must remember standing before Mount Sinai and the commandment, thou shalt not murder. And so she threw her own body over this murderer, this attempted murderer, and protected him for 20 minutes until the cops showed up. This highlights Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, that says this and spells it out to us in vivid illustration that you just heard. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? All of us. I don't care how righteous you think you are, how much your mommy loves you, we are all ungodly under this context. While we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, he spells it out right here, he says, very rarely 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Maybe occasionally, like a Belafron, but very rarely is anyone going to die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we, you, me, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know if you realize this, but every day, every single day, something dies so that you and I live. It may be a plant, it may be an animal, but we all eat. Some of you are going to leave this place later and you're going to go, and it's the greatest of ironies that on Easter, the biggest thing to eat is ham. That is weird. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's not a Jewish thing at all, okay? (laughs) Should be having lamb. Okay, But the reality is something died for you to have the meal you're going to have today. Oh, I'm a vegetarian. That plant died. may not have been as bloody, but it died. Every day something dies for you and I to live in order for us to live. That's just the fact of how it is. We've divorced ourselves so far from it. We don't want to see how the sausage is made. We don't want to see how the, the hamburger is created or, or the chickens or the ham. We don't want to see all those cute little lambs. They're so sweet. Yeah. Lamb chops. We've divorced ourselves so far from it, so we get the benefit of it, but we don't understand what's gone into it. It's the same thing with salvation oftentimes and with Easter. We, we see the benefit and the celebration, but we don't really grasp what went into it. And so as a result, we have an understanding of love that is increasingly like our culture, shallow, self-affirming, without any real sacrifice. There's an author named um, Brene, not Renee, Brene Brown. She's an author, and interestingly, she's a researcher on shame, of all things. She talked recently about coming back to the church after years away. She'd grown up in the church and had been far away and then came back in recent times. And the moment, as she says, quote, the whole Jesus thing finally clicked. She said this, which really catches me. People would want love to be unicorns and rainbows. So then you send Jesus, and people say, oh my God, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. As Leonard Cohen sings, love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. Love isn't hearts and bows. Brene writes, it is very controversial. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. In all of these faith communities, she says, where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, she says there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. All of a sudden it becomes clear why as Christians we take forgiveness to heart because the blood on the floor is that of Jesus Christ. And once we understand that, once we grasp the depth of the sacrifice that was made, the blood applied to the wood 
that provides salvation for us, then we look and we see the resurrection not as just a, a shallow celebration, but as a deep rising from the depths of our heart, from our very gut of a hallelujah and a shout of praise because it means the freedom of all mankind. It means a transformation of the world. It means there is hope and there is grace along with truth. We look at the prophet Isaiah and we, we walk away from the Robert Powells and the Diego Morgato and, and all the others up there and even Caviezel, whatever illustrations you could have. And we go to the depth of Isaiah 53 who in prophetic word says this about Jesus. He says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and familiar with pain. He knows our pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And then these words that have echoed through the centuries, these words that, that bring the depth of this day to light. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Cheap grace? No. Costly. This is a day of profound celebration. It's a day that for the remainder of time should raise our voices in song and we should take joy in it. But if we've not yet contemplated the cost of this day, then you know nothing of this day. Those of us who come to Christ and have seen the blood applied to our lives, it both crushes us and liberates us. When God said, come, let us reason, come talk. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. It has a meaning to us. In this moment of time, perhaps you've come to understand the overwhelming nature of your sin. And you think you cannot come to God that's a lie. Years ago, I heard a story of an old sailor, an old reprobate. The guy had, had whored his way around the globe and violent and raw, and he's in the process of near death now. And the priest, the chaplain, comes to him, wants to draw him into a moment of repentance to give him the last rites. He says, do you repent of your sin? The old sir says, no. Padre, I'm sorry. I, I can't say that I do. You're not sorry? No, I, I can't say I'm sorry. I mean, for all the drinking and all the women and all the violence, can't say that I am. The priest, with a moment of profound insight, read something else in his demeanor enough that he asked the next question. He says, let me ask you, are you, 
Are you sorry that you're not sorry? Slowly the facade of the old sailor began to crack slightly with a bit of a tear and he broke and he said, yeah, I have to say I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. He begins to realize how hard and how dark his soul had become and in that moment a glimmer of light and grace emitted and the priest absolved him. I don't know where you're at on the spectrum, whether you are, have been so shattered by your sin that you'll think God can rescue you. This is the story of Easter, a resurrection of life, a freedom from slavery. There's no dark place that you've gone that he cannot find you. He sees you for who you are, and he seeks you all the same. He sacrificed for you. Or if you are so cold and so hardened by your sin and so cynical by what you've seen around you that there's not a bit within you except maybe just one small slight shadow though that breaks in that moment of time and you can recognize the hardness and coldness of your own soul enough to say in this morning that even you would reach in this moment for salvation. And so This morning, before we celebrate, we must contemplate. And I would ask that we could take this moment of privacy for those around us. If you would please just close your eyes and bow your heads for a minute with no one looking around. No one's going to approach you. No one's going to engage you. This is your moment before God. And wherever you're at in that spectrum, so broken that you don't think God can rescue you, He can. So hard that you find yourself difficult to respond, but something this morning is different. It's the resurrection day. It's a day of new life and new beginnings. And know that God can meet you here in this place and apply the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of your life. So with no one looking around quickly, if this is something you want to receive it this morning, you want to on this day repent of your sin and accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, quickly raise your hand, just do it now. Do it now, wherever you're at. God sees those hands. He sees those hands even now. He sees those hands. Christ died for you. Let us pray together. Then, Father, we come together today. And, Lord, there are those in this gathering that as their hands have been lifted up before you, they say, yes, I repent of my sin. I am shattered by it. Or I'm so coldly cynical that... that Nothing except your spirit could possibly break through, and this morning it is. And so this morning I repent of my sin. I ask forgiveness. I throw myself at the foot of your cross. I ask, Lord, that the blood of that one-time sacrifice would be applied to the doorposts of my heart, that the angel of death would pass over me and that I would be free from sin. And as they pray that this morning, Lord, I pray with them. I lift them up before you. And God, I pray that you breathe life in today that now as we understand the depths of what it costs, that today of all days, this Easter Sunday, you would breathe new life into each individual that raised their hand. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of you now even still, that we would be reminded of the costliness so that our joy would be even made more complete. And so this morning, Lord, we come before you with joy, with an understanding and a depth. We come before you with thanksgiving on this Easter Sunday. 
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand. If you have accepted and chosen to follow Christ, then you stand in this grace. Remember the cost and celebrate it. But don't ever forget the cost. Now, we have had a tradition for many years here in this church of closing our Easter services in a very simple fashion. In the Orthodox branch of Christianity on this day, the pastor would often say, He is risen. And the church responds by saying, He is risen indeed. Now, understand the tense. It is He is, not was, because He is still risen. So it is, he is risen, and your response is, he is risen indeed. Now, we do this three times in ascending order. The first time, he is risen, he is risen indeed, kind of mellow. We're okay, we're chill, okay? Second one, get some guts into it. By the third time, it better be raucous, okay? <laughs> All right, so remember your response, ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen! Jesus, we give you praise this day. We give you honor because you have risen. You have validated your work on the cross and we stand free in your presence. And every time we stumble, we know you're there to pick us up again and start us back on the right path. So God, give us strength. Give us courage for the times yet to come. But this day we celebrate you and we give you praise and we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. There'll be someone available up front if you'd like to come forward for prayer. Otherwise, happy Easter, guys.